0: Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are talking to Rob Elias. If you don't know who Robert Elias is, he's the author of Major League Rebels, Baseball Battles Over Workers' Rights in American Empire, and Baseball Rebels, the Players, People, and Social Movements That Shook Up the Game and Changed America. That's two books, similar titles, different aspects of the history of sports, politics, and the hidden histories of resistance in sports. And what I wanna do is try to disentangle with Rob Elias about which book is which, what they're gonna cover, and what we could learn from this incredible reexamination of the obscured history of the national pastime. Also, I've got some choice words about what's going on with pride in Tampa Bay. You might have heard the story about the five members of the Tampa Bay Raid who refused to wear the pride flag on Pride Night. And I got some choice words about that. Um, Just stand up and just sit down awards and more. But first, let's talk to Robert Elias. So, Robert Elias, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. So we've got two books here. We've got Major League Rebels and Baseball Rebels. Can you describe to us, please, like why two books? Why at the same time? And what makes them different?
1: OK, sure. Um, so um, I, I wrote this book with my co-author, Peter Dreyer. And uh, we were working in coordination with with each other and we had a book contract and um By the time we finished what we thought was the manuscript it was about twice as long as what we told the publisher it would be so we tried to convince them it was university of nebraska press uh, to run a pretty pretty long book and they wouldn't do it so we decided to split it in half and nebraska decided to do one half and uh, uh roman and littlefield did the other half so the nebraska book baseball rebels uh focuses on race and gender and sexuality issues and the uh, Major League Rebels, the Roman book, uh, focuses on workers' rights and um, American empire. Wow. H- how do you feel? I mean, I got to ask you this.
0: I mean, it's I hope it's not to pardon the expression inside baseball, but h- uh, how do you feel about how this all turned out? Like two books at the same time, similar titles, different companies. Are, 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 do you feel good about this?
1: Well, it's, it's been, uh, you know, a bit challenging, but it was better than, you know, not having a book at all. Uh, we just weren't going to find a publisher that was going to publish something that long. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. We, we really just underestimated our, our subject. There was a lot more there, uh, a lot more uh, baseball rebels and more stories than we thought originally. And so I think, you know, on the other side of the coin, we're we're pretty grateful that we were able to find a second publisher and get, you know, everything out there that we wanted to, even if it is in, in two different publishers.
0: Well, the books are fantastic. That's what matters most. But just if you could lay it out for my audience again, Major League Rebels is about?
1: Workers' rights, uh, workers' justice, and uh, also American empire, challenges to uh, U.S. um, military uh, policy and, and interventions.
0: And Baseball Rebels is about racism, sexism, and homophobia and how it's been challenged in the sport.
1: Exactly. Yes.
0: Great. So now that we've gotten all that out of the way, um, I love the books. I love both of them. I've got both of them. And in one of them, I I had the great privilege of writing the intro. And I asked a question in the intro, and as I was writing it, I was wondering what you and Peter would say as an answer. And that question is, why do you think baseball is both such a conservative sport by any measure, but also produces these incredibly iconic rebels, not to mention the ones who've been hidden from history that you were able to unearth.
1: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, interesting question. I, I think maybe part of it is that uh, baseball has a kind of uh, tradition and uh, that tradition tends to be conservative and it's partly because of the longevity of the sport I also think that um, the, the owners uh, have gotten away with a lot uh, on the conservative side of the ledger by being exempt from the antitrust uh, laws of the of the United States. And I think they've taken advantage of that to um, move this board in a in a conservative direction by comparison to uh, to the other sports. So I, I think that begins to uh, get to the bottom of it. But on the other hand, Sometimes baseball has been ahead of the curve, right? In the sense that um, you know Jackie Robinson in the modern era breaks the uh, the color barrier, and uh, this is ahead of a lot of the rest of the civil rights movement in the country, and also uh, the integration of other uh, of other sports. Uh, likewise, Curt Flood, uh, and what he um, set into motion with his Supreme Court case in in 1972. Uh, it not only quickly led to the demise of the reserve clause for baseball players, but then this spread uh, to providing free agency for uh, for athletes and other major sports as well. So it's it's kind of, as as I think you're suggesting here, a kind of ironic mix in the sense that a lot of it seems pretty conservative. It's been very closely attached, for example, to U.S. foreign and military policy over the years. But on the other hand, there are some uh, examples where it seems to be ahead of the curve.
0: Mm. Now, you just mentioned it at the end of your answer, and I'd, I'd love to l- think a little bit deeper into that. Um, how has baseball been tied to U.S. Empire, and how has U.S. Empire served baseball?
1: Right, it is kind of reciprocal. Um, I wrote a book a few years ago called The Empire Strikes Out, and it's the history of baseball's relationship with um with the u.s military and and it really goes back as far as the civil war and then it sort of of ratchets up as as you get into the late 1800s the spanish-american war and then the whole series of uh, u.s wars and uh, military interventions baseball has been very supportive of that and in a sense uh, it's helped to sort of um validate the notion that uh that baseball is the national pastime uh, waving the flag is is a way of sort of uh, keeping in the good graces of, um, of politicians and, and uh, military folks, uh, et cetera. So what we see is that uh, baseball gains by being able to show its sort of uh, patriotic stripes on the one hand. Uh, and on the other hand, baseball has been very valuable uh, in a couple of ways for the U.S. military it's been valuable in in terms of uh training and uh entertainment for ball players over the over the over the decades really and also in the many interventions uh that our military has done around the around the world oftentimes baseball is used to placate the local populations you know give them baseball as a distraction and maybe they won't be as rebellious against the occupation so those kinds of things
0: Uh, wow And then, of course, creating a reservoir of talent uh, in the Caribbean.
1: Mm -hmm, through
0: Those imperial ventures, which has benefited baseball
1: Mm -hmm. dramatically,
0: of course. Um, Speaking of one of those players, uh, a person, of course, of Puerto Rican descent, Roberto Clemente, uh, you, you write about him in the book. What do you feel like people don't know about Clemente, who to me has always been one of the most fascinating figures? Like what's something about Clemente that you think you, you would like people to know?
1: Well, the first thing is that he he was really a very outspoken agitator for uh, Latino rights against uh, US racism, both both in the United States and then and then of course in his part of the US in, in Puerto Rico in, in particular. Uh, he was friendly with Martin Luther King. Uh, they met a number of times. King was in Puerto Rico a couple of times. They even played baseball together. Uh, And he was very supportive of the civil rights movement, uh, generally. Um, He was one of the leaders of the uh, boycott uh, that was started by the Pittsburgh Pirates uh, to um, make sure that opening day was cancelled when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Uh, And uh, Major League Baseball was very lame in its response to that. And uh, Clemente and a couple of others on the Pirates began that movement, it spread to fifteen other teams, and finally Major League Baseball relented and and uh, c- canceled the opening g- day games. But I think the other thing is that I, I think what people do know about Clemente at the end is that he died in a plane crash, and uh, he died in a in a crash delivering supplies or attempting to deliver supplies to Nicaragua after their devastating um, earthquake. Um, But what's less known is that he insisted on delivering those supplies personally and he boarded essentially an unfit and overloaded plane because he had learned that uh, the U.S.-backed Nicaraguan dictator, Anastasio Somoza, had with U.S. assistance been confiscating and stockpiling aid arriving in the country instead of distributing it to the people who needed it. Clemente felt that his status and, and presence would help to guarantee that the supplies would reach the earthquake victims. And he died uh, trying. So, in a sense, a kind of casualty of u s. foreign policy.
0: Wow. I'll, I'll, I gotta now ask about a similarly iconic figure that we think we know something about, but there's a deeper truth. What is it you wish everybody knew about Jackie Robinson?
1: yeah, that's <laughs> I think that's another another um, good one to consider because we we tend to think, well, okay, he um, played a heroic role role in breaking the color barrier in conjunction with Branch Rickey, and then somehow we we kind of forget about um, the rest of what he what he did. But um, first of all, he was a rebel before that. Uh, when he was in the U.S. Army in 1944, he broke barriers against blacks becoming officers in the in the military. That was a big deal at the time. And then he refused to sit on the back of a military bus. Uh, this is uh, about ten years or twelve years before Rosa Parks did the same thing, and he was held off the bus, and he was court-martialed. Now, he was he was found innocent, but nevertheless, he had to face a court-martial uh, as a result of this. So he was he was active, um, even though he had made an agreement with Branch Rickey in baseball to at least initially be. Be passive, you know, to to turn the other cheek in the in the short run. And then after his baseball, or well, even you know later in his baseball career and after his baseball career, um, he was involved in the NAACP, the um, uh, the Southern Christian Leadership uh, Conference, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He was uh, very active in in campaigning for the Voting Rights Act of 1965 uh, and other civil rights. He Uh, eventually came out against the war in Vietnam, and he was also one of the few people who stepped up and supported Kurt Flood in his his court trial. So really, he had a a kind of lifelong uh, activism for all of these areas of justice.
0: Mm. Amazing, amazing. Now, those are figures we know, of course, that you're giving us a deeper view into, Clemente and Robinson. Who are some people among this incredible, you know, community of rebels? that people don't even probably know existed that you want to bring to light?
1: Yeah, uh, well, there's several. <clears throat> and, and I think it, it's good to point that out because there are people who will be recognized in this book, uh, in these books. Um, And and maybe we know less about them than we should, but then there are others who are going to be um, not very well recognized, but who made, you know, important contributions. So I'll just pick one out to start is a guy named Sam Sam Nahum. Uh, Nahum was a pitcher for the Dodgers and a couple of other teams, and he was um, uh, serving during World War II in in the military. And he was asked as a ball player to organize a team for military baseball in Europe. And and back to you know U.S. foreign policy again. That was a big deal. Um, uh, there were big uh, leagues and uh, big uh, tournaments that were going on, again as a part of a way of, of um, recreation for the for the uh, soldiers during World War II. Um, he insisted on his team and having black ball players. Right now, this is uh, this is a few years before Robinson comes along. Um, and it's in the otherwise segregated U.S. military, and he insists on it, and he actually got he got it, and he was able to put two Negro League stars who were also serving in his um, in his unit, uh, Leon Day and Willard Brown, and uh, that team won the GI uh, World Series in 1945 um, against all odds, really. But uh, that that really helped. So um, here's sort of an example of. Um, a, a lesser known uh, integration a few years before uh, Robinson and Branch uh, Branch Rickey actually um, actually broke it in, in the major league. So that, that would be one example. Um, another example would be Danny Gardella. Uh, really? Danny Gardella was a um, player for the New York Giants, and uh, he had a good year for them in 1945, expected to get a raise, didn't get a raise. And he was there at the time when A guy named Jorge Pascal uh, was the um, president of the Mexican League, and he had a team in in the league, and he was also trying to improve the the talent. He had already been raiding the Negro Leagues for talent a few years before, and he decided to target uh, Major League Baseball. Uh, As a result, however, uh, the commissioner, Commissioner Chandler, Decided to uh, impose a blacklist, and he banned anyone who jumped to the Mexican League for five years uh, for returning to Major League Baseball. So, this meant, of course, uh, this was a big deal. I mean, five years is a long time to be losing your chance to play Major League ball if you come back. Anyway, Gardella played in Mexico for a year. He came back. He was banned, like the others, and he decided to to file suit. And that suit was. Quite successful in beginning to develop the legal arguments that were later used uh, in the free agency battles of the 19, 1970s. A couple of our most uh, eminent jurists at the at the time, Learned Hand and Jerome Frank, condemned Major League Baseball's reserve clause and the antitrust exemption. And Major League Baseball got so scared of this that they settled the case out of court, uh, and and so the case didn't have a chance to go to the U.S. Supreme Court and possibly overturn the antitrust exemption. So um, what Peter and I try to do in the book is to show how there's kind of a uh, hidden history of, of steps that are taken to help to promote uh, workers' rights on the one hand or racial justice on the other hand. And that's sort of the hidden history that that uh, we're hoping that uh, you know people will have a greater appreci- appreciation of in reading our books.
0: Amazing. Um- was one of your inspirations writing for this, that it actually looks a little bit like the calcified world of baseball is starting to crack open a little bit with more political players? I mean, I've sent your book already to a couple of guys I know uh, in the majors, and I don't think I would have been able to say that five years ago if you'd written a book like this.
1: Yeah, well, we hope so. I mean, in a sense, we think it's only fair, right? Because. You know, athletes, uh, and you know this well. Athletes are are, are largely condemned for getting political, uh, at least they have been. Um, you know, uh, Colin Kaepernick gets condemned for taking a knee, right? And uh, Steve Kerr was just ridiculed for demanding uh, uh, gun control. LeBron James was told to just shut up and dribble, right? And so, um, this has been the uh, the the sort of the attitude. But I think what we're finding is is recently. Ball players, including baseball players, are willing to uh, step up and take and take a risk, and um, so we think it's in, in a sense it levels the playing field. Since uh, you know, since the owners have been playing politics for for decades, and you know they use their resources and platforms to uh, lobby for uh, candidates and public policies that uh, that help them, and they're very successful in doing it, and they spend a lot of money doing it. So why shouldn't the players be able to uh, give their perspective on uh, American politics and American, you know, American economy, if the owners are, have always been able to do that. So yes, I think you're right. I think more people are coming out. Uh, um, you know, you probably know that uh, the Giants manager, Gabe Kapler, has uh, decided to boycott the national anthem in protest against the lack of gun control and, and other things that are disturbing him about the direction of American society. So good for him. Yeah. Um, You know, one of the things you
0: said early on, which I think might have had people look twice, as you said, um, racism, sexism and homophobia. I don't think people know a great deal about how homophobia has been challenged in baseball. Could you just tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Well, of course, this is um, something that uh, ballplayers in you know, in the past, at least, have been reluctant to uh, come out and and to uh, you know acknowledge their sexuality because they fear the reaction of their teammates and the reaction of others in uh, in their sport. Um, probably the you know the uh, an earlier person who's um, more interesting in in this in this realm is Glenn Burke, who played for the Dodgers and the Athletics in in the 1970s. So he Burke um, he hid his homosexuality publicly, but he did admit it to some of his teammates, and this this sort of began to open the door a little bit. He he did he did suffer for it. He was mistreated, and and ultimately, in a way, hounded out of the out of the game, and and he dies kind of tragically, um, uh, not that many years um, afterwards. But I think you know each person who takes a step then provides um, a model for others who come along. So Billy Bean, not the Billy Bean on the athletics, but Billy Bean, who played for the Dodgers and the Tigers and and the Padres in the 80s and and 90s, he was initially married to a woman and masquerading as a heterosexual, but he eventually came out after his baseball career. And to Major League Baseball's credit, they have made him an ambassador for Trying to promote more tolerance in that um, in that regard, so I I think there's there's some interesting things on on the horizon. There's some minor league ball players who have come out even while they're playing, which is a big a big step uh, to take. And uh, so I think uh, I think we're going to see, uh, and I hope Major League Baseball is serious about this. I think we're going to see more people um, do this. Dale Scott uh, the um, the umpire has also come out. And, and in fact, he's just written a book uh, that's out about his uh, his experience. So I think there's some good news in that regard.
0: Excellent, excellent. Is there anything, Robert? First thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Is there anything about the book
1: that you'd like to add? Um, I think the one thing is, you know, at the end of both books, we have sections called baseball justice. <clears throat> and. So I think we're trying to give credit where credit is due, but there's so much more that either Major League Baseball could do or that the uh, Players Association could could do. Um, trying to get more African Americans back into the into the sport, uh, protesting the uh, sweatshops that are making the baseballs and other gear in places like Costa Rica and other other countries. Um, protesting the exploitation of young Latino players um, who are still being exploited in the Caribbean, uh, demilitarizing baseball and and ending its role as a kind of agent of US uh, foreign policy. The minor leaguers are getting less than minimum wage, so to try to uh, help them unionize and and to escape their slave wages and and often deplorable uh, living conditions. And and pushing back against public subsidies, for example, uh, and also it, acting in solidarity. Um, the Major League Baseball Players Association is is probably the strongest union in the country. They could be acting in solidarity with nurses and teachers and Starbucks, Walmart, Amazon factory workers, and other exploited workers in the United States. When when those folks are are trying to launch a you know a labor protest to get a better Better wages or better conditions. So, I, I think there's a lot more that can be can be done. Um, we we think that um, the history is is important, but uh, what what do we make of the history? Can we push that forward and, and see more baseball rebels out there?
0: Mm. Great stuff. Great stuff. Hey, Robert Elias. Before you go, um, I always ask people whom whom I speak on the show what kind of music they were listening to while they were either. Uh, writing, or maybe when they were taking a break from writing, what was your soundtrack when
1: putting these two
0: books together?
1: That's interesting. That's interesting. I, I have an odd combination. Maybe I'm not alone. I like to listen to jazz, but I also like to listen to um, sort of old school, uh, you know, Frank Sinatra and and also some of the the early rock and roll. So it's kind of a a, a weird combination, but um, that, that gets me going. It's a good question. Because um, yeah. music is important.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Shooby dooby doo and all exactly. of that. Exactly. Well, Rob, thanks so much for joining us on the show. I've wanted to have you on for a long time. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you so much, Dave.
0: Yeah, be well. We'll be back right after this. But first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast. The Nation magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to the slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now... I've got some choice words about the goings on in Tampa Bay. Okay, look, every year there are multiple military appreciation nights in Major League Baseball. Every year, teams inform players that they'll be wearing camouflage versions of their hats or uniforms to show their solidarity with the U.S. Armed Forces. Every year, soldiers are granted free tickets and often show up in full regalia to the delight of fans. For franchises, this is a smart business move. You associate with the pro-military brand, crowds, and affection by association. Over the last two decades, different major league franchises have done this with pride, attempting to secure the pink dollar by having a night to celebrate the LGBTQ community. Baseball, to put it mildly, was late to the party. Corporate associations with the Pride brand have for decades proven to be lucrative and omnipresent, as anyone who has attended a Pride march with its suffocating corporate partnerships could tell you. There's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, so Pride Night, like Military Appreciation Night, is transactional if not transformational. This commodification of an identity and its attendant struggle can have dramatic pitfalls. Of course, we should want and expect every aspect of our society, especially the sports world, to be welcome and opening to LGBTQ people. But the grand pitfall, a direct result of commodification, we start using corporate representation with actual political progress. The other problem with corporate branded appreciations as a substitute for struggle is that it opens doors for bigots to cry injustice. The far-right's efforts to present themselves as anti-corporate populists because they oppose, quote, woke corporations imposing their social beliefs has become a potent message across the country, no matter if the messengers are all bankrolled by billionaires. This can lead good people on the left to defend companies like Nike as if they are somehow allies in struggle instead of corporations attempting to connect with a left-leaning youth market. Corporations are out for the buck prisons. This has revealed itself in Tampa Bay, where the Rays baseball team attempted to celebrate their 16th annual Pride Night by having players wear the Pride flag on their uniforms or hats. While well, five players refused on what they said were religious grounds, calling it a faith-based decision. Keep in mind that Pride Night is designed to be an innocuous event whose only message is not support the liberal gay agenda it's simply that LGBTQ people are welcome at the ballpark. By refusing to wear the flag, the players use religion as a cover for bigotry. But now the Tampa Bay Five, even though they were not sanctioned for their act, look like political rebels or even martyrs in the GOP's war against corporate wokeness. It's impossible to separate the decisions of these players from the actions by their thuggish governor, Ron DeSantis. First, he rammed through his Don't Say Gay law, which serves to attack LGBTQ teachers and drive them from the classroom. This then led to his high-profile attack on the ultimate woke corporation, Disney, when they raised a peep against the law. And lastly, DeSantis's practice of punishing people who he perceives to be his political enemies resulted in him killing a $35 million state-funded bill. That the Tampa Bay Rays wanted for a youth sports player development complex. He did this out of spite because the Rays tweeted last weekend about gun violence after the child massacre in Uvalde and announced a $50,000 donation to Every Town for Gun Safety, a nonprofit organization. It should therefore not surprise us a lick that right wing players would feel the political winds against their backs and go after woke corporations, their anti-gun franchise owners, and LGBTQ people in one fell swoop. And now on top of it all, they get to look like martyrs in the face of corporate rule and angry tweeters. A bright side to this mess is that several players have stepped up to explain why they're proud to wear the pride flag. These players are using their platform to amplify the necessity of standing with LGBTQ people. Their bravery should be clarifying as to what we should be demanding out of Pride Night at the Park. Let the anti-gay players opt out. Let's see who is actually for LGBTQ rights or who is merely wearing the uniform with no pressure from management. Even if the reality of how many players would actually wear the flag could be disheartening, it would mean all the more to see which players do choose to represent. It also gets us out of being bedfellows with pink logo branded corporate entities that are trolling for dollars and will duck for cover at the slightest friction with the right. Independence from the corporate is also necessary because the right should never, ever be allowed to present themselves as martyrs against big business, especially while they're bankrolled by the very people they pretend to oppose. Corporations are not agents of change, brand representation is in progress, and commodified dissent only mangles the struggle we'll be back right after this with a quick word from edge of sports hey everybody out there this is dave Zirin with the edge of sports podcast We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Goes to golfer Phil Mickelson, who left the PGA Tour to join the Saudi Golf League, otherwise known as LIV. I just want to read you what Mickelson said in uh, February about the idea of a Saudi golf league. He said, they're scary motherfuckers to get involved with. We know they killed Washington Post reporter and US resident Jamal Khashoggi and have a horrible record on human rights. They execute people over there for being gay. And then, Mickelson says, knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? Because this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to reshape how the PGA Tour operates. In other words, it's an opportunity for Phil Mickelson to get paid. Phil Mickelson, whose gambling addiction is legendary, clearly needs the money. Despite nine figures of career earnings on the golf tour, he needs the money. He says he has not resigned from the PGA Tour. He says he has not resigned his membership. But going to the LIV Golf Invitational Series... Uh, outside of london as he's as it's known i mean <laughs> by the way the commissioner of this is greg norman i mean this is just like like golfers i'm sorry golfers are just the worst there i said it okay well that's all the time we have for this week's show uh thank you so much Uh, to Robert Elias for talking to us this week. Uh, The books are called Major League Rebels and Baseball Rebels. I recommend them both really highly. Thank you also to my producer, David Tigabu. Uh, Sorry we didn't have Jake on this week. He's got essays to write. everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.